Hello and welcome to Her Moment in History. I'm Michelle. And I'm Grace. And this episode is about disguise, part of our deception trilogy. Yes, we had lies, we had spies, and now we have disguise. Fine. Yes. So, I'll go first. Yep. The person that I am doing is Agno Dicey. I think it is pronounced. I did look up many different pronunciation <laughs> guides, and most of them were American, who were going Agnidus. So, um, I discounted those. <laughs> um, so, the only record that we actually have of her was uh, in a book by Hygienus. Again, I think that's how it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. And it was a book called Fabuli. Fun. Mm, which was very, 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 very brief. So about her, there is like one paragraph of information and that's where most of this comes from. So some think that maybe she was like a figure to represent many people Mm -hmm. that actually existed, kind of like Robin Hood was, depending if you believe on him or not. And Fabuli was uh, also a book which contained 300 stories of both myth and truth. So it's hard to know which category um, Agnodice kind of falls into. What country are they from? Regardless. This is Greek. Okay. Sounds Greek. Yeah. <laughs> that probably should have, yeah, been... Um, in my head, because I'm obviously reading this, and all the pictures of were like of statues and things, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's obvious where, where she's from. But no, that, that's not obvious to someone who's listening to my butcher pronunciation. <laughs> so... She was born, or well, existed around the 4th century BCE. She was born to a wealthy Athenian family, I think it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. I realise I've only ever read that word. Um, <laughs> Athenian. Um, uh, and as she, was, as she was brought up, she was appalled by the high mortality rates of infants and mothers during childbirth. Aren't we all? Yes, yeah. Imagine how bad it was in 4th century BCE. I bet none of them survived. Um, it must be awful. I don't know. It's just the population just gradually got thinner and thinner and thinner. And they had no idea why. Mm. They were like, "This thing happens where women get pregnant and then death." So she wanted to study medicine in order to kind of rectify this, mm-hmm. to understand how to um, help it. But obviously, she was born in ye olden times when women weren't allowed to study med- medicine or anything or anything. Yeah, except give birth. basically, which kills them. Yeah. Yeah, which is the only thing, you know, of course, women are for, either to die or to give birth, yeah. of course. So, a kind of bit of backstory. So, originally, the kind of person who would have been in charge of childbirth, or, or like, um, well, not childbirth, because that was, you know, the mother, but um, the person who kind of oversaw it was an OG, kind of what we would now term as a midwife, mm-hmm. but they weren't called that then. They were called, oh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, a Maya, I think it's pronounced, or a... Um, Nyaya. And they were kind of the most knowledgeable people about childbirth um, at the time. They were even able to perform abortions, to treat women, teach women about contraception and kind of, in, you know, work out ways to aid conception, which, like, is astounding that these people kind of... yeah. Were, were you know practicing then but of course this was frowned upon by many men because men wanted to own everything basically including women's bodies um, and they hated that there was an area that women could potentially know more about so they basically just stopped women learning they thought that uh, they that these women were also then like corrupting the heirs oh that they were then producing on it like the minds of men so they just outlawed it 
just men obviously then kind of took over the teaching of this area mm-hmm. men were so kind of this is very stereotypical kind of like men versus women you know mm-hmm. binary of the time they believed that a woman's uterus could kind of walk <laughs> outside of her body what? and like <laughs> just kind of go around town and wreak havoc <laughs> okay. and then like come back and then like climb inside the woman again and so <laughs> uh, okay. yes your face is very accurate <laughs> Yeah, so they took over the teaching, which is wonderful. It's exactly what we wanted. I mean, um, if someone said someone's so... going to climb out of my body, walk around, and then come back <laughs> in again, I think I'd cry. I would not be happy with this. Can you imagine, like, right, you're 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 back in a time, you're like, okay, being a woman, eek. All that kind of stuff you've got to deal with, puberty, not knowing everything, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, but the only person who's a, you know who knows anything about it is a man, and you're like, Okay, a bit strange because, like, I don't know anything about that. He shouldn't know anything about this. And then you also, like, say you get pregnant and he's like, well, what's going to happen is you'd just, you'd lose your you mind. Would. You would never just ever have yeah. sex with them. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So this kind of enforcement was really put into motion by the, in, in quotes, father of medicine, Hippocrates, um, who refused to admit women to his teaching. Um, and made it punishable by death. Jesus Christ. We're going to die anyway yeah. in childbirth, though. What's the difference? Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Well, you've got to lose. For obvious reasons, that was really shit. So women were unable to know or gain information about anything to do with their own birth. And so this resulted in, like, many, many disasters and panicking. But also, because of, like women have a history of being taught to kind of just be modest and put up with everything it means that they would like just become quiet about their own ailments mm-hmm. so if something was like seriously wrong with them they had been taught and and kind of scared into just keeping quiet about it oh that's kind of what happens yeah, today think, isn't oh. it really but probably not as bad very much so i spe- like yeah, the, the the kind of perpetuation of wrong teachings, which then means that people internalised their own belief mm. about their own ailment. It's just, it's it's upsetting yeah. and it's maddening. So over time, in order to kind of prevent these disasters, uh, women would just refuse to let men help them with gynecological illnesses. Um, and so would just go untreated. Oh. And then this created a stereotype that women had no interest in their own health. Oh, God. Yeah. So, insert a gal, um, Ignodicey, uh, who was determined to help. Legally prohibited from doing so. So what she did was she cut off all of her hair and she dressed as a man. Nice. Then she travelled all the way to Alexandria. I don't know how far away that was. And studied medicine under uh, this guy called Hieropolis, I think it's pronounced, who was the, and in quotes, father of anatomy. What is it with guys <laughs> announcing themselves to be fathers of areas they study in? I wish I was like the mother of linguistics. <laughs> I'm not. So um, he was also, just a little bit of information, he was also the person who used the pulse for the first time for medical treatment. Oh, like, which is kind of fun. Yeah, he was like, oh, heartbeats, we can test that. So after she'd been educated, she then kind of had their version of a degree, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and then went back to Athens, where after he, like, 
From what I imagine reading this, she was walking down the street and could just hear the screams of women in labour. And so she rushed down the street, still dressed as a man, and tried to help. Seeing her as a man, <laughs> the women in the room kind of pushed her out until she she kind of stepped back in again and just pulled up her ropes nice. and was like, check this out, <laughs> woman. They were relieved. They accepted her help. A success. Mm-hmm. So this then sparked like more news of her around kind of the women of um, Athens. And so she got more work. Mm-hmm. This was obviously during a time when there was like, I, you know, it goes without saying the binary between like her sex and her gender, and people didn't really deem them as different. Yeah. But also the fact that she willingly kind of still called herself woman and things. I kind of want that to be clarified yeah. that like, yeah, you, yeah, you get it. So she was using this ability to appear as a man also with her medical knowledge and so would go through kind of word of mouth around Athens and would um, help the women. But the men of the town then got suspicious. Uh, of course they did. They did. What they thought was going on was that Agnodice was seducing their wives and their daughters and they even claimed that women were faking their illnesses to continue their illustrious affairs. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Of course that's what they think. <laughs> of course. So she was brought to trial. Obviously these claims weren't true, but she had, she only had her word to prove it in a court of law. So she kind of stood up there and went, I didn't. And they went, we think you did. And that was it. Except in front of a full court, she just lifted her robes <laughs> and exposed herself. Nice. I love that she yeah. just keeps doing Did- that. I say <laughs> I like girl power. Also, there is a word for this. I didn't realise. Um, so the word for this is Anna Siramos, uh, which is when you expose yourself. Oh. Like I I didn't realise that it kept coming up in my research. I was like, and then she performed this and I was like, Oh, what? And that's what it is. It just meant, you know, yeah. woohoo. So brilliant. She's now, you know, exposed. The men are like, Ah, you're not sleeping with my wife because <laughs> heteronormativity. Except she'd also now exposed herself for studying medicine which was punishable by death oh no do they kill her (laughs) ups and downs so she was sentenced to death but then in true community spirit the athenian women all grouped (gasps) together and protested oh my goodness did they save them oh yeah they did they claimed that oh they proclaimed that the men were enemies for condemning her who discovered health for them well they are I know. So, backed into a corner, the men changed the law. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Brilliant. Uh, Women could now legally study and practice medicine as long as it was only to female patients, which is still not great, but that takes a while to kind of unravel anyway. Mm -hmm. It also earned Agnodice the title of first female physician. I don't know why they can't just stick a mother of physician (laughs) into there, you know, on on brand. But this might not have been real. (laughs) Oh, no. But even if it isn't real, it does, like, loads of people kind of cling to this idea. Even the idea of it maybe not being real, but the idea that it is one of kind of one of the first stories of a woman kind of seizing hold of the ownership over her own body. Mm -hmm. And that this story is kind of now kind of gaining traction. It's still 
not very well known, but it's it kind of getting to that, especially surrounding, obviously, the abortion laws yes. and the kind of discourse which surrounds that. So she's kind of now being kind of propelled again um, by mm. women as somebody to encourage this kind of idea of, you know, this is my body. I can understand what's going on in my body probably better than somebody who doesn't feel this. Mm. And so that should permit me to have a, to be in the room where things like that, you know, happen. Often women are not. Mm. But yeah. So that was mine. I spoke really, really quickly there. It's okay. That's so good. Oh my goodness. Thank you. I hope she existed. It's, uh, yeah, I like to think that she did. Just, you know, a badass chick being like, yo, bam, disrobed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's... Uh... Mm. But also, because I was really struggling to, to research this one, as like we spoke about, and I was going to do somebody and I researched that person. I was like, oh, no, that one doesn't feel right. And then I, I researched somebody else and I was like, oh, and I was going through books. And then I've been, do- I've been sitting for about two hours doing the research about this. And then um, my sister comes home and just goes, oh, why don't you do her? I went, pardon? <laughs> she was like, why don't you do her? I went, how do you know her? She went, we had a conversation one night about her. Why don't you do her? And I was like, I, you could have saved me so many hours of work. Nice. By, by just saying that. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Amy. But yeah, so cracking recommendation. Mm. Then my mum said, oh, why don't you do this person? And I said, oh, I don't know who that person is. So I Googled them and they're not real. They're just the plot of a film. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thank you very much. Mum was like, I thought it was based on a true story. I was like, nope, it is not. What film was it? It was, I can't remember what it's called. Mum said it was one of her favourite films when she was a kid about a woman who pretended to be a man to compete in the Grand National and she won. But then because she'd found out to be a woman, they stripped, they wouldn't let her win the trophy. Oh. <laughs> so in like um, years' time, after I think this probably spoils the ending of the film, but I'm not 100 percent sure, and I can't remember what the film is called. Um, after this woman is then grown up, she is I think it's like her niece or her granddaughter or something mm-hmm. goes to live on her farm with her <laughs> and learns to ride a horse and competes in the Grand National and wins because women are now allowed to compete. Mm. And the niece slash granddaughter hands her the trophy and says, "Here's the trophy for you that you never got." Aww. My mum cried while she was telling me this story. I know. <laughs> That's really sweet. But I was like, that, that is, it's lovely, but it, it, I don't think it's based on a true story. This happens a lot with my mum, though. She'll like tell me a story from her, like, <laughs> she watches a kid. <laughs> She'll just cry before she can reach the ending, and I'll be like, I'll Google the plot. Okay. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Shall we have a break? Yeah. Yeah. Hey Karina, do you want to hear an interesting new fact about sloths? Impossible, Cassie. I know all there is to know about sloths. They spend their whole lives eating and sleeping, and that's living the dream in my book. I bet you don't know this fact. Fine, surprise me. Sloths are surprisingly fast and skilled swimmers. They can move three times faster in water than they ever can on land. Suddenly I love them even more. Where can I possibly learn more exciting and interesting facts about sloths? Well, we did do an entire episode on sloths for CritterCast. Right! CritterCast, our comedic animal-themed podcast. It's the show where we talk about all kinds of animals and why we love them. We upload new episodes twice a month on every second and fourth Sunday. Just in time for your Monday morning commute. You can find CritterCast on iTunes, Spotify, and many other podcast streaming apps. 
Plus, check out our website, CritterCastPodcast.com, for links to all of our social media and for more fun facts and adorable photos of critters big and small. CritterCast Podcast! Hello and welcome back. Yes, welcome back to... <laughs> so who have you done then this episode? So I've done, she's called Mary Ann Evans. Okay. But she's most commonly known as George Eliot. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Who mm-hmm. was... Now I'm worried because you said that, oh, that you didn't really like... Un- I quite like the words of George Eliot, so I'm... I mean, some of the research I found, she it doesn't make her out as a be- the most compassionate person, which is my issue. Yeah. But I've never read her okay. work, so I don't have much of an opinion on it. But I know it's significant in literature. Mm-hmm. You do, like, no books that she's written, though. Like, you've heard... Yeah, Middle March and... Okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> I think it'd be like, I know that she is a writer, but um, that's as far as it goes. Yeah, and the so, mill... Did okay. she do the mill on the floor? I think so, yeah. I think Chloe Donnelly would be, like... The best part because that's her genre. <laughs> yeah. For those who don't know, she was an English novelist, poet, journalist, translator, and one of the leading writers of the Victorian era. So she was born in Nuneaton, Warwickshire, on the 22nd mm-hmm. of November, 1819. And mm-hmm. she was the third child, and her father was a mill owner. Okay. Which I'm guessing mill like on a, the floor. Where that comes. Flower? I think so. Yeah. It doesn't actually say. So she's often known as Marion rather than Mary Ann. Makes sense. She had a lot of siblings because she had a lot of half siblings too. Because oh. her father was married before the sna- the marriage to her mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She so she was a very voracious reader as a child, and she was very clearly intelligent. And then her family were like. You know, she's not that physically beautiful, so we're going to focus more on her education, so we've got something to sell. Oh. So. <laughs> oh my god, brutal. <laughs> but also, I get it. Like, I get I kind of made that decision myself when I was Me a teenager. Too. I was like, okay, we've got one thing. <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> you are lovely. Anyway. So her father, like, invested in her education, which obviously was not common for a lot of women at the time. So... Mm-hmm. From ages five to nine, she was at a boarding school with her sister at Miss Latham School in Atterborough. And then she went to... Yeah, <laughs> from ages nine to 13, she was at Mrs. Wallington's school in Nuneaton. And then mm-hmm. from 13 to 16, she was at Miss Franklin's school in Coventry. Oh my God. Are these all like boarding schools? Some are, some aren't, I think. Like, did her family kind of just use this as an excuse to go, okay, bye-bye. Probably. She's going to have to look at you now. Bye. <laughs> But sort of after 16, most of the education stopped. Oh. But on her father's estate, um, she and her sisters were allowed access to the library. So she'd like basically teach herself everything and read everything, which sounds really fun. <laughs> I have respect. Yeah. That, yeah. And like she learned a lot of, I think her books kind of deal with sort of the richer people and then also the poor people so like when she was visiting the estates she saw like the rich of the the landowner because she was living in but then she saw like the much poorer people who were like doing the more like labor intensive jobs and so she mm-hmm. would include both of them in the work solidarity mm-hmm. yeah and she was very influenced by religion in early life like her father was a massive church goer like i will get on to more to that later <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> she was brought up with a low church Anglican family. Okay, oh, cool. Um, yeah. And then when she was 16, her mother died. So oh. I think she... I don't... It, by the sounds of it, she didn't spend a lot of time, like, on her family estate. So she was, like, mm-hmm. going all yeah. around a lot. So then she had to return home and sort of be the housekeeper. That's awful. Mm. Like, issue with that, but I get the time. Yeah. Um, but she did keep in contact with her last tutor, Miss Lewis, who was Maria Lewis. Mm-hmm. They kept in contact while she was at home, which is nice, I guess. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> which is nice, I guess. That was lovely. <laughs> and then when she was 21, her brother Isaac married and then he took over the family home. So her and her dad had to move to Falshill, which is near Coventry. Wait, her brother just kicked her and her dad out? Pretty much. Oh my god, he was like, so I have plans for this place <laughs> and it involves neither of you. Bye! I mean, I guess you just had to get married in like, right, it's time to take over. Everyone leave. <laughs> oh. The thing is, like, it's, like, her brother could do that. He could be like, I'm getting married, this place is now mine, leave. But, like, if she'd have done that and said, I'm getting Mm. married, she'd be like, I'm getting married, my husband now owns this place. He can decide if you leave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So with her now being closer to Coventry, she was more in contact with the society that was going on at the time. So she met Charles and Cara Bray, who, he was Mm -hmm. a rich uh, ribbon manufacturer. And he used his wealth to build schools. Oh, I yeah. like him. He's, he's like a cool guy. Yeah. And so at this point, she starts to be like become friends with people who are very sort of radical and free thinking. So she starts questioning oh. her religious beliefs a bit. Oh, basically, she like went to you. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But her father was not very happy about this. I can imagine <laughs> not. <laughs> So, like, she was uh, she was often at the Bray's house, mm-hmm. and they'd always have loads of, like, interesting people over. So they had, like, nice. Robert Owen, Herbert Spencer, M- Harriet Matineau, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh, to be a fly on that I wall. Know. And so, like, did she just get to, like, sit and discuss things with them. And then her first major literary work was an English translation of Strauss's The Life of Jesus, which came out in 1940. 19- 1846 so she was 26 at this point okay because she basically finished it because someone else because they were called the rose hill circle like everyone who was at the bray's house someone like one of them had left it incomplete incomplete and she'd basically just finished it that's quite Mm. cool that like they would like pick up and and drop one another's pieces of works and then she translated foerbach's the essence of Christianity as well. I love how she was like, I'm questioning my religious <laughs> beliefs. Anyway, here's two books about Jesus. I mean, yeah. Write what you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suppose so. So, because she was friends with the Brays, he published some of her early writings in the Coventry Herald and the Observer, which was mm-hmm. very nice of him. But then her father was like really not happy that she was questioning her faith he was threatening to throw her out of the house but it wasn't actually carried out her brother then her dad but she did attend church with him every week until his death when she was 30 Mm -hmm. so that's like 10 years of like when she's questioning her faith and she's just still attending church for her dad which is pretty sweet (laughs) that's really sweet but i imagine it made like the carriage rides home so much more entertaining <laughs> yeah like wasn't that scripture good You're like yes dad <laughs> and i mean she kind of as soon as her father died she went like free 
basically, literally five days after her dad's funeral, she took off to Switzerland with the Braze. Brilliant. <laughs> so this house she didn't want to be thrown out of, though. She just left yeah. anyway. Yeah. And then, so she decided to stay on an, on her own in Geneva, and she was living mm-hmm. on the lake at Plongnian, which is near the modern-day United Nations building, if anyone knows Switzerland. <laughs> in G- Geneva. What did I say? Geneva. Oh my <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Geneva. I don't... Have I been saying it wrong? It's because I've been to a place in Italy called Genoa, and I get them confused. Oh, like the cake? There's a Genoa cake? What's a Genoa Wait, cake? Wait, it It's like a... It's a very nice cake. It's very, like, moist. Nice. <laughs> yeah, anyway. <laughs> and it, she, she stayed there for a while... That um, she commented that one feels in a, a downy nest high up in a good old tree while she was living there, Aww. and it's Aww. now commemorated. There's a plaque on the building of where she stayed. So while she was there, she took long walks, and she read a lot, which was very inspirational for her. You sound like so good with her. <laughs> You're just like, yeah, she went for long walks. <laughs> she read a lot. Like, I'm. This sounds amazing. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'd love it. <laughs> And then it's basically what my quarantine has been. Yeah, same. Just <laughs> I go for some walks. I read a lot. Yeah. And then Francoise Gerard painted a portrait while it, while she was there too. So then she she came back to England in eighteen fifty, and she moved to London with the intent of becoming a writer. And so she started referring okay. to herself as Marion Marion Evans, and she stayed at the house of John Chapman, who was then a a radical okay. publisher who she'd met at the Bray's house and he'd... I assume he is he is a radical and he is a publisher what did I say or like because you said like he's a radical publisher but like was he just like like really into publishing or was he like a radical and a publisher I'm guessing both <laughs> okay <laughs> he's just like I need to publish every day so he he just bought the Westminster Review it was a magazine I think at the time oh it was a left-wing journal Mm-hmm. And she, he made nice. her the assistant editor in 1851. Brilliant. So, so what she was writing about were comments on the views of society and the the Victorian way of thinking, which, as we all know, okay. was pretty problematic. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. The more I kind of, like, read about it, I'm like, it wasn't so, like, far distant from our current way of thinking. I know, it's very influenced so, Some people's current way yes. of thinking. Yeah. Anyway. And she was very sympathetic to the lower classes, but she criticised mm. organised religion throughout all of her articles, oh. and she wrote about contemporary ideas of the time. Like, I get that, like, she's, like, wounded for those ten years she had to pretend to be religious whilst living with her dad, but, like, to just criticise all... I know. Religion seems a bit... Much. Mm. Like, the Quakers are going, what have we done? <laughs> I know, I like the Quakers. I know. <laughs> just... It, Press. Yeah, she she also focused on the business side of the magazine as well. So she like mm-hmm. organized the design and the layout of it. Oh, yeah, and then like she kind of because although Chapman like did all was the main editor, she did like most of the work that was going into the journal. Like it, it was right. full of loads of her essays and writings and reviews. And she stayed there till till eighteen fifty four. Okay, but it was like a a weird role for her to have. At the time, because why would women be editors? I know, like, shouldn't they just be knitting? (laughs) 
And then, so during this time, she formed, like, an unreciprocated attraction to Chapman. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. And he, he, but he was married, but he did live with his wife and his mistress. I uh, guess he couldn't uh, afford another woman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> was, I'm, I'm really sorry, but my bank account just won't allow it. Mm-hmm. And then she also, uh, a, the same thing happened with Herbert Spencer as well. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. And then while she was in London as well, during all this, she was attending evening classes at a ladies' college in for mathematics. I like fun. it. Mm. And so then she met a philosopher and critic, George Henry Lewes, and they decided to live together from 1854. And okay. um, Lewes was, he was already married to Agnes Jervis, but they were in an open marriage that was okay. She had like a bunch of kids with another guy and they were totally open and fine with it really progressive i mean yeah i love as well that like this all happened like really quickly because it's like 1854 is when she was kind of like working there for three years which is not a long time to kind Mm -hmm. of yeah be working there and then she was like i'm gonna move in with this guy i barely know he's in an open marriage i love it i love all of this Mm -hmm. And so, in, also in 1854, they decided to travel to Weimar and Berlin together for research. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah, I like it. And she, while she was away, she was she wrote essays and worked on the translations of Spinoza, who was a pretty famous um, philosopher. His ethics she mm. translated, but um, she completed them in 1856, but they weren't actually published in a lifetime. I don't know why. Oh, okay. Maybe they didn't like find them until. Yeah. But the trip to Germany, they kind of saw it as like their honeymoon because they considered themselves as married, even though they weren't legally married. This is so forward. Just being like, we don't, we don't need, we don't need a piece of paperwork to define our relationship. <laughs> In our eyes, we're married. Like she, she was referring to herself as Mary Ann Evans Luz, and then she even kept her own name. I know. Very progressive. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and then, so when he died, she legally changed her name to Marianne Evans-Lewis. Brilliant. Yeah. But they, they refused to, like, hide their relationship in society. I suppose if people just knew, they were like, eh. Yeah. But this this bit this I don't that I didn't like her that much because she commented in one of the things she wrote in the Westminster Review was that she wrote an essay called Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. And she just said that, like, fiction written by women is, like, full of ridiculous plots and it's trivial. And, like, that's why she changed her name. Like, that's why she published under George Eliot, because she didn't oh. want that association, which is where my problem with it comes in. I, yeah. Because don't drag other people down. <laughs> yeah. Like, stop the girl hate. What? Mm, yeah, that bothers me. Mm. I thought it was, like, the same reason that, like, the Bronte sisters changed their names. Yeah. I thought it was just like to get published. I didn't realize it was. Oh, I didn't realize it was like an internalized sort of. Yeah, because she was pretty open about the fact that she was George Eliot. Like a lot of people knew. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine like <laughs> it was like on the one hand I need to make sure people know I'm not like other girls, but on the other hand I need people to know that I wrote these works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, how do you cope with these two things? You see, because. I didn't, because I didn't, I, I didn't actually know much about George Eliot mm. um, or Marianne Evans, um, other than, so I watched a, uh, what they called, a web series mm-hmm. where she was a character in it, at Poe, oh. what's his name, Edgar Allan oh, Poe's yeah. dinner party. Have you seen I've it? I've heard of it, I haven't actually seen it though. Um, but in that, the woman that plays 
George Eliot, who I think is Lauren Lopez from Starkid, is like this, like, I'm a man, I have two male names, George and <laughs> Eliot. And then, yeah, but that was my whole basis of understanding yeah. of George Eliot's actual home life. And boy, it was wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in 1857, so the first work of George Eliot was published, which was called, ah. it was, I think it's part of a short story collection in a magazine there was three in there okay. and it was called the sad fortunes of the reverend amos barton that's a long, a title. long title but it is also the victorian times they like long titles very true but then she went on to call what one of her fam- famous novels middlemarch <laughs> which is a short title <laughs> yeah. yeah so then t- i think it was a year only a year later she then published the scenes which was a two-volume book, which was believed to be published by a country parson or perhaps the wife of a parson. So I don't think that, like, it was well-known at this point. It it was sort of... Because I don't think that was a novel. I'm not quite sure what it was. But her first novel was Adam Bede in 1859. Oh, yeah. These are all, like, years apart. That's pretty impressive. Like, did she just, like, have a backlog of all of her writing and then she was just, like, releasing it? Maybe. Or did she just literally read write and walk is that it i mean what else did they have to do back then yeah valid they had to get their sexual frustration out somewhere mm-hmm. didn't they adam bede was an instant success and um, so everyone mm-hmm. become pub- like curious who is the author so it's like one person was pretending that it was him and he was called joseph liggins and so she just like like she just had to acknowledge it because he was taking all of her credit oh i look oh <laughs> I love the idea of her just going, oh, I don't, I don't like this, <laughs> but I can't, oh, I can't tell people. I'm just going to tell people. I'm just going to, I'm just going to tell people. It's fine. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But her relationship with Luz at this time, he was very like encouraging of her writing and he was like providing like a st- stable, like money wise so that they could, she could write, Aww. which was very nice of him. What a good but they still like, the couple weren't accepted in polite society because they were both well, he was married, and she wasn't. Yeah. I mean, like, I get that, but, like, polite society can go suck a dick. Yeah, true. But then they kind of got acceptance because they were introduced to Queen Victoria's daughter, Princess Louise, which... Oh! I'm just checking. I I mean, that's pretty... Yeah. Um, and, like, Queen Victoria was a fan of the work as well. I think she was the one who was having an affair with this famous painter at the time the um princess louise because i watched a documentary about her and uh, he was nice and then he died when like in the middle of them having sex in his studio (laughs) and it was a big scandal (laughs) and like queen victoria was so because she's snobby she's a snobby queen (laughs) she was not happy about it at all (laughs) oh why have i never heard of that i feel like i want to go in like research that there story. is a on netflix it's called queen victoria and the children it's so good highly recommend it oh, it's a little that. bit repetitive but you can get over that because it's interesting i found like a lot of documentaries are they like they forget that like you've been watching the documentary for so long yeah, true. Like, they're just like oh by the way yeah and the queen victoria she commissioned the artist edward henry corbold to paint some scenes from adam bede because she liked okay. it so much and then american civil war broke out which oh yeah it's not that much of a big deal but she basically she was she was just sympathetic with the the north 
the unions. Oh, thank I God. I thought you were going to say the South, and I was <laughs> going to be like, okay, I'm burning my copies of her book. Yeah, which, that sympathy was pretty odd at the time, because most people were, like, in favour of the South, because they're awful. Confederacy, awful. Done. Civil War coming. And she, she liked the writings of this guy called John Stuart Mill, who, he wrote something called The Sub- Subjection of Women, which he... He basically talked about the laws which made women oppressed and like she really supported this even though she's what as in like was he writing about them in a way to expose them or was he like writing about them in a way that was like to enforce them Honestly I'm not quite sure oh, but okay. she I'm really hoping it's to expose Yeah me too but she really enjoyed yeah like his comments on it and then he ran for parliament and she was like a big supporter of him um and he did actually win which which, win what he won i i don't know if he ran he said his parliamentary (laughs) run so i don't oh so he he ran for part so i don't know if that means he was an mp i assume it does okay Um, so he it it says it's he served in parliament okay cool yeah. yeah and he she was in agreement with all his efforts from like he was trying to get stuff about female suffrage into discussions oh he defo would have been writing an expose piece then wouldn't like defo Mm. yeah yeah and then she then she's like basically there's another lecture that she attended by someone called lady amberley who it was like a, a feminist lecture about uh-huh. Like education for women and the right to get a job and equality and child custody, and she was very supportive nice. of all this. Oh, good. Yeah, it's, it's it's mildly redeeming. I was just still not over that she just like dismissed all like female writers. It just made me yeah. so sad. Especially like considering she was living post, you know, so many good pieces, and I, I get because like I I've been in discussions with people who dismiss women's uh, like well not women's literature, but, like, um, literature written by women is just kind of, like, fluff and throwaway. Yeah. I mean, you were there when I had a, an argument with somebody about mm-hmm. it. Um, but it's like, yeah, but it doesn't have to be, like, you know, voices are different. We have to have... Oh, this is, oh, riles me up. Mm. I get very angry in these discussions. Yeah. And I hold on to, on to the hate. And then I just... Mm-hmm. You know. When she finished her next book, The Mill on the Floss, she dedicated it to her beloved husband, who wasn't her husband, but yeah, the guy she was basically yeah yeah. And like her, most of her novels were quite were praised for their realism and the psychological insights that they had. Yeah. Um, specifically Middlemarch apparently is the best example. But mm. yeah, then she she just kept writing. I think she was like fifteen years straight. She was publishing. Oh my god. Yeah. The Silas Marner, Romola, Felix Holt, the Radical, Middlemarch, and then Daniel Duronda was her last novel, which was published in mm. eighteen seventy six. And this was just after she'd moved to Whitley in Surrey with Luz. And, like, he was dying at this point. Like, his oh. health was getting really bad. But he lived for another two years, but he not in a great place. And then, yeah. so she spent the next two years after his death, w- like, editing his final work called Life and Mind. And then she met this... He was a Scottish commission agent called John Walter Cross. And they kind of, like, formed a relationship. And he was 20 years younger than her and his... His mother had just died, so they were like, "Oh, oh, 
Ooh, bonding over their loss. And it's got implications like his mother had just died, so he seeks an older woman. Comfort in somebody <laughs> who's an older woman. <laughs> I mean, right on, but also I don't I feel like he could look back on that decision later and go, ooh. Yep. Yikes. But then four years happy. <laughs> two years after they well, after Lewis died. They got married, and she changed her name to Marianne Cross. Oh, okay. Just, okay, just like that? Yeah. So she wouldn't get married to, to lose, but she would I mean, she couldn't, because like, he was oh, already yeah, anyway, married, and in an open marriage. Oh, I see, yeah. But, like, it was kind of a scandal at the time because of the big age difference, but her, her brother mm. was very approving of the marriage because he'd broken off, like, any relationship with her as soon as she started living with Luz. And, like, he now sent his congratulations. Okay. So, this is a bit weird. So, while they were honeymooning in Venice, Cross, he was, he got quite depressed, and he jumped from the hotel bank balcony into the Grand Canal. What? He survived. Oh! What? <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, yeah. What? He was just, like, yeet, you know, just, mm. I mean, did he want to die? I, I don't know. It just says that he he jumped off the the balcony. Uh, okay. But yeah, they they um they came back to England. They bought a new house in Chelsea, and then she got um, yeah. a throat infection. And then this oh like she had a kidney disease as well, which had been bothering her for quite a long time. And then she died on the twenty second of December, eighteen eighty. Which is the same year she got married. She got married in May, and she died in December of that year. She was... She got married, she went on her honeymoon, her husband tried to kill himself, failed, then she came back and died. <laughs> yeah. That was her year? That, what a year, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holy she shit. She was only 61, though. That's a hell of a, you know... Okay. And he went on to live another 45 years. I'm not sure what he did with oh, his wow. life, but... <laughs> Mourned yeah. some more. Jumped off some more balconies. Because it says this, like... Okay, so it says she wasn't buried in Westminster Abbey. Okay. But that that implies That's that random. she should have been, maybe? Because it's just like saying, I'm not going to be buried in Westminster Abbey. <laughs> I really want that to be the way I remember. <laughs> just being like, she didn't do this. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh... <laughs> Now we think maybe she actually did. <laughs> but she wasn't buried there because of her, like, she, la- she lost her faith and her adulterous affair with Luz. Oh, so she wanted to be then? Maybe. But then she was buried in Highgate Cemetery uh, right next to her love of her life, George Henry Luz. And, like, it was a specific section of the cemetery that was reserved for social... Societal outcasts, religious dissenters, and agnostics. <laughs> the best place to be buried. That, <laughs> very. You know, like, um, when the dead all come back to life, when that will happen. I want to oh, be yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, just, like, waiting, mm-hmm. you know, with some glasses. Just like, <laughs> hey, guys, let's discuss. And so near her grave are the graves of Karl Marx and her friend Herbert Spencer. Oh, my God! <laughs> what a place to be. What a gang, honestly. Yeah. yeah, and in 1980, they had a memorial stone put on her in Poets' Corner for a hundred yep. years from her death. She's got a bunch of landmarks mm-hmm. all throughout 
Warwickshire, where she was born. <laughs> There's some schools that were named <laughs> after her. A bunch of stuff. They've yeah. got, like, the George Eliot School, Middlemarch Junior School, George Eliot Hospital. I mean, sometimes it just gets a bit excessive, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then a biography was written by her husband after she died, but he mostly portray- portrayed her as, like, quite a saintly woman who was completely different from the scandalous life she'd led. Can you imagine if, like, her brother then picked up and been like, what's this bitch? <laughs> like, this isn't my sister. She was hella rad. And then... Like, Virginia Woolf was a big fan of hers, and... I mean, yeah. In 2007, she was voted the 10th greatest literary... No, Middlemarch was voted the 10th greatest literary work ever written. What, like, internationally? Yeah, by Time, I think, magazine. Oh, wow. And then, that's George Eliot. That's really long. Sorry. I mean, it was fantastic, though. Thanks. What a life. I know, a fun life. I mean, yeah, you can only aspire. Just without the girl hate. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Maybe she was just going through a rough few years and that's when she said that. I mean, we've all been yeah. there. We've all been kind of fueled by the, you know... She could have grew out of it. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. We all go through the I'm not like other girls mm. phase. It's okay. Yeah. We grow. <laughs> uh, do you have any recommendations for this week? I do. Do you? <laughs> um... Well, I, f- I forgot to get one prepared, but so um, I was reading literally to the second uh, that you then, that we then like mm-hmm. called. So I, I just finished a book, which was fantastic. And I'm going to get the author's name. Yeah. So I just finished um, a book called The Mercies by Kieran Millwood Hargrave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think it came out this year or last year like it's relatively new mm. it's about like i think it's like the year is 1617 and this town in norway has just had this like massive storm and all the men are dead oh nice um, <laughs> and then it's like skip forward a little bit and then this guy this scottish guy is like what up i'm here to ruin your lives and he's like you are women you can't survive without men and they're like we've been doing it for years and so he thinks they're witches and he's there to kind of enforce the rule of King James, who at the time was burning witches. But also, the Scottish guy brings his wife along and she has like gets involved with mm. then the women in this Norwegian town. It's very, very cool. Oh, fun. Um, yeah, so that's my little... Mm. That's my recommendation. Do you have a recommendation? I do. I'm going to pronounce this name probably very badly. Um, it's it's a book called Half, the Yellow, Half a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda... Ngozi Adichie. It is fantastic. It's so good. It's about, it's set in the Nigerian Civil War in the 1960s and it goes like quite a bit into colonialism at the time because basically the UK were funding this Nigerian Civil War where literally Nigerians like because the UK had made a specific like part of Nigerian hate the rest of it. So like these specific kind of people in the country were just like because they didn't follow one specific rule the the uk just like made them out to be horrible people and then it turned into a massacre of all these specific people and then it turned into a civil war which the uk then funded which was just it's it's horrific it's like it's not a nice read but it's very important and it's very very well written because i read her it was a ted talk mm. the we should all be feminists yes yeah. because um, i read that and that was very very yeah. good 
um, but that's only small. But yeah, why I did what did Britain a what Britain second why why like what could they possibly have well what could we possibly have gained colonialism oh yeah so because the only reason I actually had the book and I'm quite ashamed to say it that I probably wouldn't have picked it up unless because I was meant to take this class mm. in Denmark when I was studying there that was post-colonial literature mm-hmm. but it didn't fit with my other classes so I had to drop it but I'd already bought all the books for it so I've just kept them and then I just like I want to read this so I just read it and it was mm. amazing I'm definitely gonna have to read it other books though. I mean yeah and I want to read that one so good Ooh, I have so many books on my to-read <laughs> list. This is really bad, but I will. Yeah, we all will. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I say I've read so many good books recently that it's really bad. I'm, I'm like blurring them together a little bit, which is dangerous. But... Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And uh, I don't know. Should we say like you know, give us a rate? You know. Yeah. yeah. Have a good week. Hi. There's a spider on my desk, yeah. and I want to cry. Have a good week, everyone. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I have to get that spider. Okay, bye. <laughs>